folks. Welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm your co-host for today, Gary David. I'm handling intro duties for today's podcast since Adam is tied up with the beginning of the semester duties. And I have to say, as a professor, the beginning of the semester is always a funny time. There's a sense of loss, quite frankly, that comes with the end of vacation, which I'm sure many of you can commiserate with. But that also mixes with some optimism over what is going to occur during the upcoming semester. Teaching is a funny thing in that no matter how many times you've taught the class or topic, each semester is a little different and new because the class is new. You can teach the same topic and material to two separate classes in the same semester, and you can have two very different and unique experiences. The beginning of the semester is always like unwrapping a present to see if it's something you wanted or something you would like to return if possible. And all that's based on what kind of class do you have? Who's in the class? How interested are they? What's the dynamic between people? It's always hard to predict, and that makes it, frankly, kind of exciting as you're walking on the first day to see what's going to happen, how you're going to be tested, what kind of magic you have to work to get people involved and to get them interested. And the upside of being a professor, at least in my personal world, is that, quite frankly, I can do almost, almost anything I want in class. I can take whatever risks I want. I can be as creative as I want. Within legal bounds, of course. I mean, there are things you can't do, which by law is prohibited. So you got to be careful around those issues. And there's issues of ethical behavior and moral behavior. Outside of that, you can almost do whatever you want. So, for instance, this semester in my SOCH 264 class, which is criminal and social justice, I decided that we would try designing the syllabus together. There is this nascent movement of course co-design, which is a version of participatory design and participatory action research, human-centered design, not kind of rolled together in a classroom environment. And although we are only two classes in, it's been a pretty interesting and exciting experience so far. It's typically verboten that you walk in the class the first day without a syllabus, let alone have the students design the syllabus with you over the first couple weeks. Being a new experiment, I'm not quite sure how it's going to turn out, but hopefully it turns out well and the students have been really good about embracing it. You can track our progress if you're interested over at my consulting website, ethno-analytics.com. Just look under the course co-design menu and you can see the updates I'm putting there. Be sure to share your thoughts, whatever thoughts you have on that topic or whatever suggestions you have. I need the help. And these discussions of work is, is perfect for today's podcast. And it got me thinking around what were the worst jobs I've ever had. You know, if you could think back to your life about the jobs you've done, what were the worst? I've had a lot of different jobs, and I can't say that any one was really horrible. Probably my best one, quite frankly, was the summer I spent painting fire hydrants uh, for Kelly Services. I was a quote-unquote Kelly girl as a temp for a summer. Learned how to drive a stick shift, got to paint fire hydrants. That's not bad. Got my first experience with working too hard as one of the guys who worked for the town took me aside after the first day and said, you know, you really don't have to go quite as fast. Why don't you just slow down a little bit? We got all summer to do this. Our relationship to jobs and what jobs do to us, they're intricately or intimately intertwined, right? Who we are 
is often defined by what jobs we do. Enter our guest for today's podcast, Emily Gindelsberger, who is the author of the new book, pretty new, On the Clock, What Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. Emily was a journalist who, upon her newspaper closing, decided to work at a variety of jobs, which included an Amazon fulfillment center, a call center, and McDonald's. As our conversation shows, the book explores what it means to work today, where for a lot of jobs, not just low-wage jobs, but jobs of all kinds, de-skilling, automation, technological controls and surveillance systems, routinization of work, and stress all come together to create an employee experience that cannot only be demoralizing, but also physically debilitating. At a time where there is a large conversation or a larger conversation about how to create better employee experiences through meaningful work, what about those lower wage jobs for those that may not have many choices? If you don't have a lot of options on where to work, you can't really create a seller's market of jobs or a buyer's market of jobs. You just got to take what you can get. So what does this current environment mean for those people? How can we make the modern workplace more humane? How does management philosophy, how does the drive for the bottom line or for greater and greater profits, not just profitability, but profit margins that keep going up and up and up while employee experience goes down, down, and down? Or is the situation just going to get worse in this race to the bottom? As there are fewer employers or fewer options, are companies just able to set whatever terms they want? Are we turning the clock back in terms of workplace safeties, in terms of regulation? How much regulation should we have? How much as a society should we be making informed choices of who we buy from to dictate what their treatment of workers should be? Or are we out of choices in an increasingly monopolistic or a economy where there are fewer and fewer players as things become merged and integrated? So we explore all of these things and other topics on today's podcast, and we hope you enjoy listening. All right, so I mean, I know you've been on WHYY, and and, and, and unfortunately, this is not WHYY. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that this feels like a big letdown coming from the HYY and other outlets. How many how many interviews have you done for this book, by the way? Oh, a bunch. I've done I've done enough that I've started uh, actually like just sort of like wagon wheel rutting my way onto like talking points, which feels weird and gross as a journalist because I hate people with their talking points and I hate people that tell you the exact same thing over and over. But like after a while, you're just like, well, this is what I need to say. This is the shortest way to say it. Hmm. And we were talking about a little bit before we had the technical difficulties, which has now been resolved. So yay, that okay. this idea of at least an academic work we, it always feels like the research that we do as ethnographers, I mean, in sociology, maybe in anthropology, you don't necessarily get as close to the phenomena as you did working in Amazon or Con Convergis or McDonald's. Adam, have you found that in anthropology too, that people tend to be not as directly engaged in doing the thing they're studying? 
Um, I, I mean, as far as I know, like it depends on the kind of ethnography and anthropology. So I'm, I'm an anthropologist. Gary may have said that. And so I, I think we find that like, you know, doing doing ethnography, like a lot of it is about understanding the, the, the labor. For example, I was working with quinoa farmers in Peru and, uh, you know, that a lot of it like so I, I wasn't farming for the entire year, but I did learn how to farm and and. Uh, and doing different kinds of activities like how to sow quinoa or how to, how to harvest it. And so I know that's maybe a weird example versus working at McDonald's, but um, in, in terms not, of like... No, it's like, totally not. You know, <laughs> no, in like embodied labor, it is certainly part of uh, the anthropological, like, you know, the, the required way of doing learning, I guess, or learning by doing. I mean, it's interesting because it's like, it's a huge contrast from obviously being in school, right, where you're reading about things and... and uh, even as as teachers may prepare you to go into the field or you know go on go on your beat as it as it might be called I guess for a long term beat, <laughs> um, you know it. I mean, it, I it, majored in yeah. music theory. I don't know oh, about okay. you guys. <laughs> I, I am a musician, so I like that too. So, so you understand, yeah, you know, the theory versus the playing, right? It's like they go well together, but they can be totally different exactly. at the same time, you know. Uh huh. Um, yeah. And so with with that point about the theory and, and the practice, one of the points that in music, I was seeing in a different interview that you would pass the time a lot by singing. And it, oh, and yeah, and it, all the time. And it, I, this might, yeah, I'm not trying to create a, a direct equivalency, but did it ever feel like you, now you understand like where slave songs came from? As you're working at Amazon, having to sing to pass the time to maintain your sanity, that's the first thing I thought thought of was this idea of, you know, people who under slavery singing to yeah, try to maintain on, a manager like, condition. And on prison gangs too, and yeah, there's like a. I actually did think about that quite a bit. The sort of the ways people used music sort of back in back in the day when people were doing rhythmic activities like or you know rowing a boat uh, or you know, being oarsmen on a ship or something that way that music can sort of like make people act as one person sort of, or they can keep them, keep them moving at the same pace that they need to be moving or whatever. But this was a much more solitary uh, application of, of music for me for, for sure. Although I did hear a lot of other people out in uh we called this we at, so we're talking about the Amazon warehouse that I worked in and, uh, I we were alone for like 11 hours a day and it got pretty isolating and like it was an extremely painful job and that's what a lot of the uh, of the writing that especially the reviews of the book a lot of them focused on like for example I walked between 13 and 16 miles a day a lot of people were shocked that there were uh vending machines that dispensed mild painkillers for free around the warehouse so that lines wouldn't build up at the at the nurse's office uh but the hardest part was being incredibly isolated and incredibly bored and just having nothing to do except sing to yourself all day and like I'm a musician like I'm a like I sing a lot I've been in a lot of choirs I know a lot, I've you know directed a lot of choirs so I know a lot of vocal music but after after a few weeks I really did start like memorizing the words to songs in my off hours just so hmm. I would like I could sing that instead you know just to change it up a little bit so yeah that it was yeah, the isolation almost made me quit a couple times uh, because I just felt like I was going insane out there, you know? And how does one get from music theory to become a journalist, by the way? If I want to back up a little bit, because <laughs> that wasn't covered in the book, you were a music major, but then you end up writing 
for different <laughs> newspapers. How, how does that transition take place? Uh, well, at first I started out uh, doing, I mean, I graduated with a degree in music theory with no desire to be an actual, you know, performance musician. Like I've always made my, I've made money on the side performing, but it's like, I don't want to do that professionally. It would, I don't know. Are either of you musicians at all? Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, a little, That's a little little bit. Bit. So are you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. If, if you've ever had a period in your life where you do it too much, it's kind of starts making you hate it a little bit. And it yep. becomes like, rather than something you love, it's something that you do for work. And I didn't want it. I didn't want music to be that for me. So I kind of was like, all right, I will find something else to do. How about I go into the incredibly lucrative field of journalism right now? Mm. <laughs> it seems like a good choice. Right. Yeah. It was just kind of, I don't know. I'll just do this. And I had an in because, you know, I had a conservatory degree uh, and I could write about classical music in a way that not many other people can, like from a perspective of like, here is this, this is funny, or, you know, this is, I have a lot of background on it. So it was, I was writing like silly, fun opera reviews for a long time. And that's sort of how I, and I, then I started getting onto more, you know, serious stuff. Is, is there a big market for silly, fun opera reviews? You'd be surprised. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting choice. And part of the reason I ask about that is, you know, it's a really prelude to translating something which seems very niche to a broader audience to, you know, describe experience, right? And so opera being this very unique kind of experience, this thing that not, you know, not everybody thinks of as something to enjoy, your job there, like with the book, is to capture this thing in a way that expands the audience so a broader population can appreciate what's involved. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, don't get me talking about this unless you want to hear way too much about it. But like my my musical training was it like I don't really know that many other journalists that had this sort of weird musical neuroscience education. Like my uh, my advisor, he does his work on uh, music and embodied cognition. It's essentially like, okay, so like if aliens came down and looked at people dancing in a club or something like that. They would be like, why are these weird aliens? Like there's clearly like sound waves going on, but why do they have to move around to them? Like Hmm. why can music make, why can't a bunch of tones in a certain order make us feel a certain way? Like can, how exactly does that combine with empathy? And long story short, just most musicians have some way like, a really good grounding in like how to sort of express, like figure out the emotion that the original composer was trying to go for what that person was feeling. You try to feel that yourself and then you try to kind of put it into your, into what you're doing with the piano or the violin or whatever you're using and, and your body as well, like your face and your movements and all that stuff it's like being an empathy transponder, sort of. You hmm. are, and journalism is kind of the same. It's really not that different. And that's why I've always been so drawn to experiential journalism or, you know, where I go do something myself and I really try to understand what it is about, like what it actually feels like, and then transmit that feeling to other people who don't know what that is in sort of like 
the most effective way I can. Because if you don't understand how something feels, you don't really understand that thing, no matter how well you know about it academically, I, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. Do, do you find, I mean, maybe this is a, a weird metaphor, but the, the act of producing music, do, do you also write music? Um, uh, sort of. Not Devil really. here and there. I mean, yeah. do, do you, and I guess, I guess it's one of, I'm, I'm wondering Not about in any like sort this, of professional way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. But just like the idea of, in terms of writing also, that like these, these sort of creative outlets of expressing something a certain way um, and like producing it. I love this idea of empathy transpondence. That's a, it's a cool, that's a cool idea. Um, you know, do you find that, you know, music and words have similar capacities to do this to people? And like, is, is that, do you find that journalism is, is kind of like, it's interesting because like both the professions, the idea of like the music as the passion project and writing and journalism as, as, you know, telling stories are, they're interesting how like they're both these outputs that we do that somebody else can experience, uh, that, you know, I guess transmit empathy. Do you find that they both kind of do so equally for you or is that something that happens differently? Um, again, <laughs> again, do not ask me these questions. If you do not want to hear way too much about <laughs> totally it. Different. Let's all, let's, let's I never get here, to right? talk about my like music theory stuff and I always am very, very happy to do so. Uh, but yeah, like the general, the, the thing about music and embodied cognition, it's that, uh, sort of the, the empathy thing is kind of evolutionary, you know, like it helps us all live mm. together in you know groups without like killing each other when mm -hmm. you know disagreements happen um and it also empathy sort of like one of the lesser known things that it's good for is helping uh like knowledge get passed down generationally rather than just genetic information like for example like you have these things called mirror neurons that mm -hmm. when you watch someone doing something with their hands or, you know, with their bodies or something, you can kind of feel a, a shadow of what it feels like to do that thing. So that was like useful, you know, when we were monkey people for like, you know, baby monkey can watch mom monkey, like make a net or something or uh, how to make a spear, how to make a fire, all those things. So like that information doesn't just die when the first really smart monkey dies, right? Mm -hmm. you can, she can pass it down onto her baby. And that has spun off, like basically all of our art is a, is just us having fun with that. Like, yeah. it's just like, oh, let me experience what it feels like. It's like a roller coaster ride, sort of. Like, instead of using it for something useful, like net making or spear making, we just like, like, oh, what does it feel like to be like an incredibly good martial artist, like let me go watch this movie and like sort of experience what it's like to do that. And when it comes to that, like all of the different arts are kind of like, they have a, it's like, uh, not convection, conduction. They have different mm. conduction rates and uh, like movies, TV, like anything with video, like with visual and audio components is, that's like the most, like you can affect people the most. And like music is kind of easy for simple emotions, but not great for very complicated ones. For complicated ones, you pro you generally need writing hmm. because it's so you know specific. Well, I, I you know I'm going to bring up a movie because I know you wrote for the AV Club. I'm going to bring up a movie that is probably the worst underappreciated movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And it's a movie with C. Thomas Howell, so it's a little bit dated. Might be old, too old for you both. But it's a movie called Soul Man. And the premise of the movie, did you ever, any of you ever see the movie Soul Man? No. 
Yeah, so so the pre- this is good. You're gonna love you're gonna love this. Imagine this pitch meeting. The premise of the movie is that C. Thomas Howell wants to go to Harvard Law School. His parents cut him off. Comes from a wealthy family. Parents cut him off. So a friend comes up with an idea that he should take tanning pills to turn his skin black so he can oh get Oh my god, uh, I have heard of this movie. <laughs> right? So wait, wait, wait for it, wait for it. So he, he goes to Harvard and he, he's there under an African American scholarship having black skin. And it's it's kind of like a black like me kind of you know, that book play, right? right. It's, it's that same kind of riff like Black Like Me was. However, one of the very poignant scenes at the very end was when uh, his professor who is um, I'm blanking on his name right now. The voice of Darth Vader. Who was it? Oh, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. That's him. Yeah, James Earl Jones. I like this quiz. He says, "Oh, <laughs> right." So he goes, "I, I guess you now." He comes out. He's not black. He's white. James Earl Jones says to him, "I guess you know what it's like to be black now." And C. Thomas Hollow looks at him and says, "No, I don't, because I could always go back." Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I was reading your book, the movie. Soul Man was kind of was thinking about this in this conversation about experience. Your life wasn't going to be defined by always working at Amazon, always working at McDonald's, always working at the call center. So you could go back theoretically to this other life. And when I was working in the liquor store, not just I, not just could I knew did. that I would return to that life without right. a problem. That this was not going to affect me. Like that, yeah, I had an escape button the whole time. So it really did make my experience very different from most of my coworkers. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was doing my my liquor store work that, you know, what's it like working in a liquor store? I don't know what it's like to be from Iraq, to come to the United States during wartime, to have two years of medical school washed away. So now I have to work 70 hours a week in a liquor store for 10 to 12 hours a day with no other possible venue for employment and so when when you were working there and thinking about those things and trying to capture this experience by doing how do you think or how what role do you think that plays in this experiential journalism that you're talking about well i because like i knew that was going to be a big deal because the like when i had dead-end jobs sort of in before i was able to like elbow my my way into journalism, which was frankly not easy even 15 years ago. Uh, The thing that made me the most exhausted about working kind of crappy like receptionist or like retail or whatever was just the like long days, body hurts, like it's not satisfying work, obviously. But the worst part was just like, am I will I do this forever? Like, is this it? Am I never going to get a, you know what I mean? Like, even though I was like 21 or like I had a degree from a nice college and I knew in the back of my head, no, you're going to be fine. Like, this is all right. But even then, like, that's what drove me crazy about those jobs the most, more than anything else about it was the thought that this was it. I would never escape these like shitty, shitty jobs that uh, that most people have, frankly, uh, like uh, most people I talk to are not going to escape their shitty, shitty jobs. And frankly, like I keep in touch with a lot of people uh, that I met and like friends on Facebook and, and stuff like that. And it, it's just been a real bummer uh, seeing how hard people have been, how hard a time people have had these last few years since I last saw them. 
And uh, yeah, it's just like you see a lot of GoFundMes. And that's that's another thing I think people should hmm. maybe think about when it comes to, you know, what when it comes to being like siloed off in social media or whatever. Just getting even like a couple dozen people from outside your social class, like you kind of realize like how many GoFundMes for medical care and funerals and, and, and dental work are just people are constantly poor people are constantly giving each other money, which makes it even more difficult to break out of poverty. Like basically in order to get out, you have to just sort of like say no to everybody once you get enough money that people will start thinking to ask you for some of it. You know what I mean? Hmm. You got to be really cold to say no, but that's kind of also the only way you can save. And uh, yeah, I forget where I was going with that, but. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it does speak to this idea of, and then, you know, being a sociologist who studies work, the, the voiding of that contract between worker and an employer in the book one of the interesting things was you know when you're talking to your father about this idea that well you're, you're supposed to work hard and be committed and show up early and give yourself to the company and the company will reward you for those acts of you know being a team player and you know we might not love our jobs way back then but you know what we got insurance we got vacation we were able to build a future you know get achieve a middle class status and that's like vanished right that's gone and that's one of the things that i think is really important about what you're saying it's not that you know we used to love our jobs and now we hate them no we've for a long time people have not liked their jobs but they provided some kind of avenue towards something better and there's this overarching sense today of hopelessness that is the result of that that contract being eroded or just simply torn up and thrown away. Yeah, I mean the contract was like at least when it started I I sort of like get it as starting with Henry Ford in the so I'm not sure exactly how far through the Amazon chapter you are but like I get a lot into Taylor and Ford and all of these things. So Henry Ford uh was he sort of like did kind of the equivalent of what Jeff Bezos did with Amazon and the $15 an hour wage that they have across all of their fulfillment centers. Uh, Henry Ford had the, uh, he had the assembly line. Uh, one of the, he had, it wasn't exactly the first one, but it was the first one that was like really hardcore uh, in his plant in Detroit. Right. And so he like workers just it was miserable that people hated it and they all said pretty much on mass that the trade-offs involved in this job are not worth it so like you would expect from you know the sort of like very mathematical logical idea of like how capitalism works uh like in that situation that actually kind of did work in that like everybody went to work at other plants in Detroit even though Ford paid a little more than everybody else Ford couldn't get people to stay on this on, on his assembly line because it sucks so bad. And so he finally just said, all right, whatever. I'm paying twice as much as everybody else. Like, you can make this deal with me. Your days at work are going to be miserable, but your life outside of work will be taken care of. That is a trade-off that you can choose to make. And a lot of people, like especially immigrants and black people who had come up, you know, who were sort of fleeing the South, uh, were desperate enough to make that trade. But now we're asked to make the same trade. Like, here, your life is going to be miserable, but 
your life outside of work is also going to be miserable because we aren't paying you enough to, you know, alleviate any worries about finances that you ever have. You're constantly laid on bills. You're constantly like scrimping and saving. You're constantly, you know, overdrawing your account. It makes life outside of work extremely stressful too. So yeah, like it is like not surprising that feels like such a giant insult like these jobs do these days because it is a giant insult people like the companies are not have changed their end of the bargain while making our end of the bargain much worse and then they have the you know gall to call these people that I worked with like lazy or you know just you know they're just not trying hard enough that's the thing I hate the that just bugs the hell out of me the most about all of that rhetoric is just like, I know the people I worked with, like the people who are lazy are not working at Amazon. Like that is like anybody who works in one of these towns know that Amazon is going to destroy your body. Like they, everyone knows it's going to be really hard. If you are lazy, you do not go work there. I don't know. It just drives me crazy how poor people get demonized when they are, the, the people that I work with are the most hard workers at any job I have I've ever been at. You know, it's, it, you, but you're talking about the Henry Ford thing and, and being from Detroit. My grandfather's family actually came up from West Virginia to work in the factories. Yeah. And, and it was $5 a day. You know, it was mm-hmm. this idea that Henry Ford was paying $5 oh, a day. Oh, well, your grandpa was one of the original $5 day people. Well, it, yeah, he was young when they came up, but that was my, my family is Arab American. And so a lot of Arab immigrants, one of the reasons why there's such a large Arab community in Detroit was a lot of them came up. Um, you know, to work in those kinds of factories. And, and you know, there's a longer story there that I won't bore you with. But the, 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 the interesting part about that story was that when people would talk about the $5 a day, the, the genesis of it was laid at Henry Ford wanting his workers to be able to buy the cars <laughs> they were producing. Yeah, that, that, I actually did. Was, oh, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say in your book, you talked about it as this other piece, which was it was so horrible that the only way you could get them to work there was by basically bribing them to say that it was worth it to be there for this much money. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, I actually did some sort of research on like sort of the contemporaneous spin that Henry Ford and like Ford Motor Company tried to put on the $5 day. And yeah, it was all like, there were so many like treacly stories that they circulated around that time. Like, you know, Henry Ford, he was like sitting in his office on Christmas day. And like, he saw all these, all these men standing in the cold waiting for a job. And right. he thought, my God, I, these men deserve, <laughs> these men deserve a, a good wage. And I just, and he just decided to pay them better because he was a nice dude. He was horrible. He was a horrible guy. Yeah, and, he was like, yeah, you know, Henry Ford, horribly racist, not but totally fine with employing like all sorts of people in his factories. And but one of the ironies here is that we might think about, you know, that was way back then and we've evolved now. And you hear companies talking about, and I teach a class on employee experience, that we have to improve the employee experience. And one of the one of the uh, examples of Improving employee experience is, ironically enough, Amazon. And you write about this in your book. The idea that Amazon is held up as this paragon of employee experience. And I, I've always, when I talk about it in my classes, I talk about it, you know, are you talking to the people working at the fulfillment centers? Because they don't seem to be very happy. No. <laughs> Who's filling out these things? And so can you, you talk about this in the book a little bit? 
Oh, about just every, but like the average Amazon person's warehouse experience. Well, not only that, but how in the world does Amazon end up as one of the best places to work when you have this kind of a well-known, established track record of people in fulfillment centers just dropping like flies? Wait, do, do people really think Amazon is a good place to work? Like, even as far as I have heard, uh, and like I know some people who have work on the white collar side, but I've gathered that the white collar side is also completely miserable in in much like in very common ways with the way the warehouses are miserable. It's just like you never stop and there's no room for resting and there's no room for getting tired and there's no room for like your family, uh, except like mentally rather than physically. Well, on my phone right now, I just pulled it up. Amazon has replaced, this is in 2018. Amazon has replaced Google as the best place to work in the U.S. What? That seems unlikely. According to who? <laughs> yeah. Right, Bart? It's not, it's not, it's no, it's not uncommon that it, like, the top like, 100 places to work, huh. that you will find Amazon listed as one of the best places to work. And oh, wait, call, I bet it, I do know why that is. I bet I it do. It doesn't call into question your findings. It calls into question where these things come from. Yeah. You know, how, yeah. how these, how these metrics, how these things are established and just give you a, like a quick side story. One of the people I work with, he used to work for a consulting company. And he said, this one company brought them in to say, how do we improve our rankings as a place to work? And, and the solution was, we'll do one month of, of beneficial activities for employees. And at the very end, we'll have a very big picnic to celebrate the employee. And the next day, we'll give them a survey about how they feel about <laughs> working here. <laughs> very and, clever. and you know what happened? They, they, their rankings went up. Huh. Hey, man, I should... I should rent myself out as like a management consultant. Well, it does, you know, but that does raise in the question, you know, what, where these reputational aspects and elements come from and how did companies respond to what you wrote about in your book? Cause like today, right now we see Amazon commercials all over the place. And you, you mentioned this in an interview I read with you that some people do like it there. Some people do have beneficial things to say. When you look at these commercials, what and this this PR effort? What goes through your mind, given your firsthand experience? Uh, it was sort of the same with uh, I did sort of a similar project with Uber uh, before my newspaper closed. In that, uh, you know, you would if you just did the standard like data collection thing of like taking a lot of Ubers and talking to the drivers, you were going to get really skewed data because. Like, obviously, you're not going to talk to anybody who does not like driving for Uber because those people stop driving for Uber. <laughs> like, there's no obligation for them to, for the most part, to, to continue doing it after they decide that it's not worthwhile for them. And so you never get to talk to those people unless you make a pointed effort to actually get in touch with them. Um, but, like, it, so usually you would be talking with people who had only been there a couple months. Like, they'd only been doing it two or three months. And I found that to be pretty true with Amazon too. Well, I did find people there that were like, yeah, like it's hard work, but it's not as hard as say like decapitating salmon in Alaska for hmm. like 16 hour days or other things like, but those people had not really been there that long. Like, and I think, 
you really got to wait until somebody's been somewhere at least a year to like check in on how that job is. Cause I mean, I love every job I have for about two months just cause you're, you know, you're learning stuff and it's still really novel. Uh, but yeah, most of the people, especially because Amazon's like, uh, the, the wage, uh, hike or not wage hike, the wage step, uh, pay increase, like the steps up are apparently very bad and you max out, uh, not like after a couple years. So it's not really meant to keep people there in the long term. Um, but yeah, what I, what I think of when I see those cheery people is I'm like, mostly I'm just like, you are being taken advantage of. Like, if you think that this, like, it's, it's like, it's like Amazon has managed to stick a, like an IV or something into, into the, into the vein of their like American work ethic or whatever. And are sort of like slowly draining it out and turning it into money because it really, a job like this that really takes everything out of you and really does not give you enough in return to make it worthwhile. That really like starts to make you doubt whether this, this thing that you've been told your whole life that like work hard, if you work hard, if you're, if you are, do a good job, if you're exemplary, if you always ask for, you know, something to mop when you're not doing anything, like you'll succeed. It's all about just hard Mm -hmm. work and virtue and, and all that. But you know, it's, it's, I think it's fairly obvious. It's not like that. And that kind of thinking is more religious than, than, than like realistic it's like the american dream is a sort of religion that makes people do things that aren't really in their best interest sometimes such as yeah. working themselves to the bone for amazon which frankly does not see them as anything but you know kind of a, a piece of tissue paper to be you know used and thrown away hmm. well that, that's that's a deep metaphor <laughs> um i mean a couple i mean tons of thoughts there i mean i'm, I'm kind of curious like to even jump back to a previous idea about kind of the classism that comes with like calling certain workers lazy and to bring it to this point here, it's like, is there a sense from, from workers on the floor that you got of where this, you know, you're being taken advantage of do, do workers themselves see this is it, or is this kind of a journalistic, I can see it cause I can step in and out perspective, or is this also talked about on the floor? And, and if so, um, even from your perspective too, like where, do, where do you see and where do workers see this taking advantage, where does it come from? Do they see it? Is this like kind of a Jeff Bezos is taking advantage of me or do they see it like as the next level up of middle management or is it like, you know, 10 stories up in the, in the skyscraper? Um, in my experience, people tended, did not tend to see Amazon. Like it's definitely, it was definitely harder, like because hmm. their algorithms and, and sort of the stuff that they use to enforce productivity on their workers are a lot better than most other places like they're really good at it and because mm-hmm. of that like amazon is known as you know a particularly difficult place to work when it comes to repetitive stress injuries and you know being incredibly worn out at the end of the day but excuse me um <laughs> i'm sorry refresh my memory what was i just talking about yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's all good a, I was thinking dog about, in this yeah. house yeah. and she oh. just came to 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 stick her nose in my hand and now i forgot oh, about okay. what kind what kind of dog uh, i don't know her name is maya and she is brown and is a hell of a beggar 
So that, she's just it's like, my dog. yeah, I, I just sort of like shoot her off. It's easily distracted by cute dogs. It's so it's, it's very understandable that uh, we would be more, the dog would be more interesting than us to uh, <laughs> take your attention. Or at least Adam. Adam, I mean, you know, I wasn't talking Adam was, so I can only speak about Adam not being as interesting <laughs> yeah. as the dog was. Exactly, exactly right, you know. Um, but yeah, so what we were, what I was, I was asking about was this idea of, of does this, there's, is there a sense of being taken advantage of by workers on the floor themselves? You're, you're kind of pointing in this ah, yes, direction yes. of like, yeah, that, yep. So it, yeah, I would say there's a general feeling of like this, but not specific to Amazon. It's more of like this, I like this, this sense that you are being taken advantage of by like kind of everyone uh, mm. kind of just like any job you get is going to be similarly crappy, which I, I think is legitimate. Like that was another thing about, uh, about working at Amazon. And like, for example, I went out to a dive bar once with, uh, with a bunch of like ladies from Amazon that, uh, I specifically picked to interview because I wanted to talk to somebody that who, who, people who liked their jobs there. I wanted to see mm. what their mindset was. So I tracked them. I tracked down a few people. We went out for drinks and like, I don't know, like one of them worked seven, had been working seven days a week for the past like month and a half. Uh, and this was her first day out. We were at like a, you know, a divey bar and she was like, yeah, this is a splurge for me. And it's just like, but that was also while she was talking about how well the job paid and sort of the cognitive dissonance there for me was just like, how can you possibly think that if you work, you have to work seven days a week and still like going to a dive bar is a splurge. Like that means your job doesn't pay well. That, that, you know what I mean? Like if you, another one said something like uh, she referred to the job after a while as oppressive, like, and but just before that, she was talking about how much she loves it. Like, that's why it's very difficult to to rely just on purely on worker thing, like worker testimonials about whether they like their job or not. Because like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it makes, makes good there's sense. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's stigma involved with saying you, you hate your job. But hmm. like after you have a few drinks with somebody, you usually start getting more of a, a, a better, a more honest account of what like they actually think of their their jobs and i didn't want to say like like they knew certainly better than i did that this was a better job than they could get somewhere else like they're the ones mm. that have, you know applied for jobs in that area that was pretty you know out of the way did not have a lot going on when it comes to you know jobs with a lot of upward mobility uh so that's the thing. Like people do see Amazon as better than other places, but they don't really have any experience with the sort of more white collar world where things are a lot better. And it's gotten like the divide has gotten so big that it's almost like a like a linguistics problem at this point in, in that like when you say a good job, like that signifies a completely different set of like circumstances to mm. somebody from the upper class and then someone from the lower class. And what I found is like the upper class cannot believe how bad the jobs that are considered good in the lower class are. And the people who like, I have gotten a lot of feedback from people saying that like 
the book, like I sound extremely naive in my book, like, oh, like it's mostly like Fox News grandpas, like that have not actually read the book, frankly. (laughs) Uh, But like a lot of them are like, oh, poor millennials. Like, ugh, she found it actually work hard. Like how, how, how would she have known that? Like, Mm. but it's true. Like there is a, there is no understanding of what the other side is like for either of these sides. And that's what I was kind of trying to do. Let's just close that gap a little bit. And I think, I think part of that gets to, especially in rural areas. And I don't know if this was the case in the place. I know one, you know, the, the, the two of the places that you worked were in rural areas. The McDonald's was in San Francisco, not a rural area, but in the rural areas, the options are often either no employment, uh, working maybe at someplace like this, like a fulfillment center or a call center, or a prison, because one of the areas that prisons have actually grown quite a bit are in rural areas. And you want to talk about horrible jobs, you know, prison guard, not a great job. No. You know, and so I wonder about expectations, right? You know, how, how our expectations become so, you know, lowered the, about what is good or not that by comparison to something else, this seems great. And so I guess then is the part of the strategy there. If you want people to, to be satisfied with these horrible jobs, it's really lower their expectations around what um, other opportunities are available and they'll be thankful for anything you give them. Yeah, yeah. And also that will like sort of encode that thankfulness about, or like gratitude for a job uh, for employment is, again, like this sort of virtuous thing uh, when it's just like, no, it's not. It's it's really not. You are in, a, you know, you are doing work for someone. You are making that person money. And th- that was, there was not that much understanding of that, I think, because it's so into, like, our culture is so saturated with the idea that, like, job, like, job creators, like, are doing workers a favor or something. It's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not, like, that's that's not how that works. That's not the same as like charity. It's you're right. running a business. Yeah. You're you're making jobs so that people can make money for you. But I don't yeah. I don't even know how to change that. I feel like that might be too ingrained in the American psyche to change within a generation. Well, one one of the voices that I was really compelled by that really wasn't captured much. I mean, there are these vignettes, but you, you know, you didn't live this experience. Were like the middle managers. The yeah. people doing the training, the people managing the workers, because they were in in a sense slaves to other things. There was that one part of the book where you're, you know, you got injured at the McDonald's, you're upstairs in the manager's office. And I feel like I'm showing you I read the book now, I'm writing my book report. <laughs> you're in the manager's office and you saw the spreadsheets that that or the 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 metrics that they had yeah. to hit at different points. And so there was always a subtle tension about the people training you. Did they really believe? it when they were telling you how great it was going to be in the call center or when they told you how you know how important it was hit your numbers or were they themselves in this really bad job under this enormous pressure and stress to perform because there was someone else above them that they had to answer to oh definitely the latter yeah like it like i i guess i knew hypothetically that middle management at these or middle and lower management at at these sorts of companies is they are not really in a different class than workers technically uh i would say like they're definitely more similar to the people that they supervise than they are to the people above them for sure 
Uh, and yeah, they are completely beholden to metrics in the same way that workers are. Um, and I did, that's the thing. Like I just like could not get management to talk to me for any of these things, which makes sense. Like why would you put your job in jeopardy uh, for like someone's weird book project? Uh, but I don't know. <laughs> well, I also wonder about their own emotional calluses. You you use this phrase in the book, emotional calluses, and so you you have to develop emotional calluses as a worker with McDonald's customers, as a call center worker with the people calling in and yelling at you. And then I also wonder, you know, in this you know this this whole dehumanizing ecosystem, right? That the managers have to develop emotional calluses with the people they're managing, where they might see them getting injured or working themselves to death. Or, you know, being just haggard and stressed out, but, you know, I have to get my numbers, so I can't worry about your well-being. I have to worry about my own well-being. So, like, in the Marxian terms, this really does fuel the alienation to each other, right? We're not only alienated from the means of production. We're not only alienated from that which we're producing. We're also alienated from our fellow producers as a result of this larger system that's been created. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, yeah, it, it definitely is sort of an arbitrary, uh, you know, sectioning off of these sort of like the upper class of the lower class, I guess, uh, that has more to lose than the, you know, the people that are working for $9 an hour or less. Um, but the yeah, the management is definitely absolutely in the same boat. And yeah, like I, I met a lot of people who had been managers before and had developed that sort of like it's like being a cop or something like everybody you deal with is constantly lying to you. And like everybody you deal with tends to be in some way involved in a crime usually. So you start getting through because those are the only people that you tend to interact with. You start your vision of like the general honesty and goodness of the world sort of starts declining and declining until you start, you're, you find yourself like, 40 years old and pretty sure that everybody is a criminal or everybody is always lying or that human beings in general are not trustworthy. And like, I talked to people who are, who had been managers who talked about kind of like similar things to like that description comes from somebody I know who was a cop, but hmm. managers sounded a lot like him to me in that, like, they would always be like, well, I mean, there are these horrible, like, everybody knows some worker that they've worked with who is a slacker and who sucked and, like, who was bad and should have been fired, right? But I think it's just when you're a manager, you kind of have to, you do have to dehumanize workers because otherwise, like, how are you going to hand them a clope and shift, you know? Like, that's mm. just, it's just a crappy thing to do to somebody. So you kind of can't get too close i think and you you talk about you know this idea about being a cop you reference jeremy bentham mm -hmm. in your book and you know, early theories of deviance around bentham being like well if you want people not to commit crime then make the committing of the crime the punishment for it so great that they're going to avoid doing it mm -hmm. and it, it, it gets translated into management philosophy right this idea of you know time theft that, well, if you want to make people not steal time by taking a break or taking a breather or telling a joke or for a second trying to not produce, then make that punishment so great that they won't, you know, try to do that thing. And so this becomes like this utilitarian dystopia uh, of, of the modern workplace. 
Yeah, and I found that a lot of those. So it used to be there's sort of this two step thing with 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 all of that with like the whole punishment element, which was. So here's an example. Like I ended up, I managed to track down one of the guys that wrote one of the original, like uh, some of the original software that operated call centers like Convergis. It wasn't someone from Convergis, but it it was a very similar system to what ours was with like with automatic punishments and stuff like that. So initially it was just, you know, to see if, oh, is somebody, you know, 10 minutes late every single day? then have a talk with them about it and then you know they started like more automating the 10 minutes a day thing so instead of if you're late every 10 minutes 10 minutes every day it's not just a manager says hey quit being late 10 minutes every day or the manager asks like hey what's going on at home that you're always late like what's the problem with this uh and you know hearing about perhaps some context that might make that make more sense and be sympathetic uh, such as like a, you're taking care of a relative your kid is you, you wrecked your car and now you have to get a ride from someone that sort of thing well those people you know that are trying to create and construct this kind of record keeping right this oh, panopticon yeah. right and, and, I, and I, I love it and you mentioned this person who created this software because I read about that in another interview you did and showing you again that I did my homework. Yeah. And this. Hey, you've done the and, most and, homework, man. This is very impressive. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, this, I mean, we, we might lack in some areas of WHYY, but in other areas, we try to definitely, you know, <laughs> excel, such as ta- dropping Jeremy Bentham references. Yeah. So this, this, this idea of, you know, the management philosophy, the technology is a tool, right? The metrics are a tool. Yeah. There's nothing in and of them that would result in the outcome that we see today. It's this not only management philosophy, but it's this ownership philosophy and I, you know, of we need to use this technology to control the masses because left onto their own devices, they will do nothing else but avoid doing work. That seems to be the central theme that is functioning in these kinds of low wage, you know, you know, meat grinder kind of workplaces. Yeah, it's this constant atmosphere of just mistrust and and contempt frankly uh because all right to go back to to go back to what i was saying about the about the call center technology yeah like so after so at first it was just measuring these things but after a while it started automating the penalties for being late it started automatically every time you clocked in late it was just like hey nope there's another point you get another point on your record and once you get to a certain amount of points they used to give managers the, you know, authority to, you know, do it yourself to to decide whether it the like it was a good idea to fire someone, like so that there was a human involved somewhere. But it turns out that, you know, a lot of the managers would be merciful and not fire someone or like find the context that they're operating in to be, you know, good at like it made enough sense that they were a little late that they thought they would not be late in the future after whatever crisis they were in was over. So because the managers would not like enforce these, these very hardcore rules, they just cut middle management out of it completely out of 
you know, the sort of decision-making process and they got right. this guy to tweak the software so that people just got fired automatically. And then they tweaked it. So if you got fired automatically, it would automatically alert the security guards who would come to usher you out. Like it was just completely insane stuff. <laughs> uh, it it, it wow. was like a comedy, like a black comedy, like hearing this, God, I wish I hadn't had to cut that chapter out. I was really, I was so happy. It took me so long to track that guy down. <laughs> I'll publish it someday. And and the irony about all of this is that I was just looking up Convergys um, and customer experience. And as companies, whether they be McDonald's or Convergys, Amazon, same, even though you weren't customer facing, how in the world are you going to have good customer experience when your employees are miserable? Yeah. And when they're so miserable that you have like 200% turnover because everybody's going to be new. Everybody's going to be learning the ropes. Yeah. And but what did seem funny about that is like Convergys did seem legitimately confused, or at least the top executives did. Like I found a slideshow that they were that somebody left online on the Internet somewhere about like, why do we have this turnover problem? And they had all sorts of ideas, but none of them was it sucks to be yelled at all day and to be able to be, it sucks to have your manager like yell at you because you took two minutes too long in the bathroom. Like it's embarrassing. It's undignified. And just like, I don't know. I always find that the people who, who tend to be the most on the side of like, you know, work hard. I just shut up and work, do the work, work hard. Like, why you got to whine about hard work are also the same type of people that tend to favor phrases like, like it's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. You know what I mean? It's, mm, it's right. that people hate living on their knees. Like it's not that hard to understand. Uh, it sucks. And that's why people leave. And that's why your customer service is so bad. It's because you underbid. That was another thing that came out of that interview with, with that guy is, he was like, yeah, like everybody, everybody in this industry knows that these third party call centers do not actually provide very good service at all. In fact, they sometimes provide extremely bad service when it comes to places like, you know, Comcast, for example, most of the cable companies use third party outsourcers because they don't want right. to, you know, have their own call mm -hmm. centers. So like, apparently they just, but it, it's just that they are so, it's so much cheaper to use one of these third-party call centers than it is to maintain your own that just like once you have gone third-party call center, you can't go back. Like you just cannot get, once you've seen how much you can save, nobody will give you the money to open your own again once it becomes clear that these companies are not doing a very good job. Uh, so you're just kind of stuck. <laughs> and yeah, right. the reason it's so miserable is frankly because these companies bid too little like they 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 were just over ambitious of like how much how good service they could provide for a ludicrously low amount of money. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about C. Thomas Howell. We've talked about Jeremy Bentham. <laughs> I'm going to drop an Upton, Upton Sinclair quote now Yay. because I think it fits. <laughs> Yay. My, my so boy. It's, it's, the quote is, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah. So you talk about, you know, the, the, the easiest explanation of why we have such high turnover is that it sucks to work here. Why can't they understand it? Well, if their salary depends on them not understanding it because to improve it would add to cost, 
which in the long run actually would decrease costs because you had less turnover and happier customers and et cetera, et cetera. There's a tremendous amount of ROI that's been demonstrated related to actually making workers happy. They become more productive. They work harder, all these, all these good things. But if the idea is this, you know, quarterly assessment of earnings, then yeah, it's going to be hard for them to understand that when their salary depends on them keeping those costs really low and hitting those benchmarks that they need to, to satisfy the analysts and the investors. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Like all the market incentives right now are like, they reward short-term games rather than, you know, long-term stability. So I don't know exactly how, like, I don't think anything's going to change unless we change those you know, the incentives, like maybe making it less important for, you know, maybe putting shareholders not first, <laughs> maybe second or third or, you know, or factoring, mm. you know, the worker experience in as anything but like a afterthought, because that's sort of what it is now. It's just like, oh, it's really given no no value, whether the workers' lives are miserable because it can't be put into like objective metrics at all. And even if it could, people always, you know, especially Americans always just tend to say they love their jobs because again, it's like a, this is, it's like a religion for us, I, I think. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on too. I mean, because again, I mean, not 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 sort of in a name dropping dropping parade, but you know, it, it does make me think of Max Weber too. And like, yeah, right, you know, <laughs> oh, Max Weber, excellent, yeah. that's a good one. You know, just bringing I mean, out the big one. guns today, right? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Right? Today's sociology 101. <laughs> but right. you know, but but just this idea, right? That that it actually, because I, I really, I think is I think it's compelling that you're talking about the idea of this, like having to love your job as as almost a religion. Um, and that, that's what this, like the, there's virtue in, in both doing work and then like, but seeing being like being seen doing this work too. Um, and that, you know, if you're doing well, then you're somehow in the favor of God and, and the, the Weberian Protestant sense. But, um, you know, I don't think it's like, we don't, you know, I don't know if people, I doubt, I hope, I hope they don't see Amazon as a kind of God that they want to look good for, but, um, <laughs> you know, but certainly I think there's just, perhaps just give it not... a little time, give it a little time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Where, where are we going next? All right. There. Yeah. Okay. I actually have um, this copy of, uh, I was going to, uh, so my, my, uh, my husband's parents are from India and we got to go on a trip to India right after I got back from, I think it was Amazon. We, we had been scheduled to go on this trip for a very long time. And when I was over there, uh, my, my, my father-in-law picked up a copy of Forbes India and it had, uh, the cover of it was the cover story was about Jeff Bezos and Amazon sort of trying to make inroads into India, which was like a big deal in, you know, 26 in early 2016, uh, except it had him, it had this crazy cool illustration of Jeff Bezos, like as Krishna uh, on the cover of this magazine. I, and I actually still have it. The picture was so cool that I actually like, <laughs> like hung it up on like my bulletin board of, you know, stuff that I'm doing for the book and for my next book and stuff. It inspires me. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. Are you, are, you, are you stuck on the, Je- on the Jeff Bezos as Krishna uh, yes. image? Yes. A little bit adamant. I mean, it was a curveball she just threw at us. It was. I mean, you were with Max Faber and she came back with Jeff, Jeff Bezos as Krishna. I mean, that, that, <laughs> so that's yeah. like, you know, I'll call, I'll see you and call, you know. Yeah. He's literally trying to ascend to the heavens. Like, I mean, how much more, how much more, you know, on the nose does it get than that? Right. Well, well I do like this idea, though, this, you know, what about the metrics, right? And, you know, what if, what if, right, if, we, if we were going to have Emily 
you know, be the architect, the designer of, you know, a better workplace environment. You know, what if the, one of the metrics for, for, for bonuses was not earnings, but employee turnover? You know, and I'm thinking inversely that the lower the turnover, the higher the bonus, not, you know, the higher the turnover, the better the bonus. What if that was a metric of success? I mean, how, you know, do you see this ability? Do you have any hope when you say this, say it this way? Uh, do you see any hope in the workplaces being redesigned in a way that quote unquote low wage work can actually be a better experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, anything can change. And what what would it take? And what would that look like? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a really like incentive girl. Like you just have to, because I don't, I feel like it's general, like I get asked a lot about like what consumers can do to help these things we're, we, but like that's not what is going to change anything. The the only thing that will change how low wage workers get treated by the companies that they work for is not like some sort of consumer boycott or some like some Twitter people being mad at them on Twitter. It will be someone. Well, that's a relief because I didn't want to have to boycott anything. Because <laughs> if you're going to tell me I can't buy stuff on Amazon, I wasn't going to. <laughs> I don't tell anyone not to buy stuff on Amazon if it makes their life easier. Like, go for it. We live in the world. Including your book. Yeah, I mean, my book's listed on Amazon. I don't, I tell people to buy it from a local bookstore because that's how personally I would feel better about it. But it's not like I'm going to not let people buy the book on Amazon. Uh, or like I'm going to, it's not like I'm going to fault, you know, some new parents from for buying baby stuff on Amazon because they're stuck at home with a with an infant and can't leave the house, you know? Well, what would, what would you do? So you're not boycotts. I don't have to go on Twitter and be angry. I don't have to change my buying behavior. It's going to have to be someone on, you know, it's going to have to be the government or a very solid, uh, like, working class union movement to change the incentives. Like you were saying, like, right now the incentives are to maximize quarterly earnings and not so much of a focus on right now. It's really short turnover at these really crappy companies is really cheap. So it's less expensive to, you know, have constant turnover that is, you know, 100, 200, 300%. Like you can train a new person because these jobs have been so descaled. You can like my, my training at Amazon was like two days. Uh, my training at McDonald's was one day. Like, it's just not a problem. And there's always people moving in and out of the workforce because again, you kind of can't escape these kind of these crappy jobs. You can just hope that the next place won't be like this. But if it's a major chain, it probably will have similar timing and metrics and constant surveillance and, and all that stuff. So yeah, right now the incentive is not to fix the the way workers like worker experience is just not a factor. Uh like almost literally, it really does not have a value in this market all you have to do is figure out a way to give it a value make it harder to fire people so that turnover will go down sure that's gonna certainly be like create some cases like that where some horrible worker you know is lying around on the job and some nice little grandma is you know who's employing him is is run out of business because of her horrible, lazy employee that she can't fire or whatever, or that it's too hard to fire. But the point isn't that each single individual case is, you know, 
perfectly just or that it doesn't create any ridiculous scenarios. The point is that it would change if you it would change, you know, the rules by which these businesses operate. They would, you know, once it becomes financially like a problem for them, they will change their employee experience. They will make it better, but they're not going to do it on their own. Like someone in government or possibly a labor movement pressuring government really, really hard just has to tweak stuff so the incentives are changed. And I would think one of those would be, you know, making it easier to form unions, uh, making, giving, like having unions have more power in negotiating, making, I don't know, just all of, there's a lot of small things, particularly like lower fair work week laws. Philadelphia just passed one of those a couple weeks ago, or not a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, um, that just say, nope, you just cannot give people their schedules the day before they start. Just can't do it anymore. You will get fined a lot of money if we kept doing it and then enforce it well enough that you actually start, that these companies actually start losing money when they do these practices that are making people's lives miserable. It's not that hard. You just have to have the will for it. And right now, I think the will of the working class to find like create a new world or like for something other than what we have now which is kind of crushing them constantly like that has been sort of split between Trump voters and Bernie voters in my opinion uh and again don't take my word on anything involving national politics because I totally thought Clinton was going to win and I was surprised as <laughs> anybody else um but after you know now, having done all of this research, like the 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 energy is the same. It's just that people are being sort of led in two different ways. If those groups could get together and actually, they don't have to like each other at all, but they have to recognize that they have things in common that they can work together to do. That's why they call it solidarity instead of like best friendship, you know? <laughs> hmm. Well, it, it just kind of goes to this idea of like, you know, the reaction that led to the current situation we're in, whether Bernie voters or Trump voters or, or whomever, or just more internationally with populism, is that the primacy, and this goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, the primacy of the emotion, the experience, right? You know, this idea of food, clothing, and shelter as being fundamental things that all human beings need, but it's also this idea of avoiding, you know, of, of pain and fear as really strong motivators and people are, as your book lays out, in a lot of physical pain from their work and living in a constant state of fear, whether at the workplace of losing the job, of being able to, to pay for things, of being able to get healthcare, you know, and, and those primal, you know, feelings, those primal experiences are fueling a lot of what we're seeing happening in the world today as people become more, you know, hey, I'm going to go with Sigmund Freud now, more of an id-based uh, <laughs> orientation. So we'll drop a little bit of psychology in this podcast and go with go with Freud. This this it, this reptilian brain of just react, right? Mm -hmm. Of fight or flight. And I, I, there's no place for me to 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 flee to, so I have to stay and fight. Hmm. Yeah, like <laughs> sometimes I I have a hard time sort of like people will be like, "What's your book about?" And I'll say, "Uh, it's about." 
uh, you know, low wage work and I worked in the Amazon warehouse and all these places, but it's also kind of about evolution and like evolutionary psychology and why everyone in America seems to be like anxious or depressed or losing their mind at, at people in all caps online or, or whatever, or, you know, obsessed with QAnon and, or other conspiracy theories or something. It's just, I don't, I do really think that it is due to the increases in the amount of stress that both employers are able to lay onto their employees from like while they are at work all day and sort of and how little money they can pay or how little like how little the wages that these corporations are allowed to pay uh, ease your mind about life outside of work, about taking care of your children, about paying the rent, all of those things. So it makes for this kind of awful situation where you're constantly stressed at work, you're constantly stressed at home. And when that happens, it really, it, it affects you, you, your mind and your behavior in these very profound ways. And they honestly line up extremely well in, you know, my view with what is going on, not just in America, but just look at most countries right now right people mm-hmm. are just all over the entire world are sort of just rejecting the status quo Pe- people are saying like sort of on mass we do not want this anymore we tried this for 50 years we tried globalization we tried just like complete like uh, like capital's complete domination of the world we, we like we have tried work hard you know, have fun, make history. And we are working hard, but we are not having fun and we are not making history. You know, we are just getting repetitive stress injuries. But (laughs) yes, I do think that we are all being driven insane by the way that we work um, and that it is completely unsurprising. Once you have done some research on the effects of chronic stress, I tried my best to give like a, a, a very short overview, but it honestly has really changed like the way that I view the world and politics and like interpersonal communication and like, frankly, just like a whole half of the population that doesn't vote like me, or actually it's more of a quarter of the population that doesn't vote like me and the entire half of the population that just thinks voting is stupid and doesn't do it, you know? Mm, yeah. Fair. Yeah. It's- so like what's with that cheery thought, what's the next book about puppies and kittens? Cause I saw that on your Instagram page too. There's oh, a yeah. lot of puppies. Oh. There's a lot of kittens. Mm-hmm. So is that, the, is that the next, any like a palate cleanser for you? Or are you like diving dogs, deep yeah. into? Well, I've been, I've, I've been playing a lot of control. That has been my palate cleanser uh, oh, on nice. the Xbox uh, and taking lots of pictures of puppies and kittens. Um, I have a lot of ideas, but I'm really interested in, uh, I, I get, I, I mentioned it like one time in the book, but the phenomenon of Kuroshi, which was uh, for any readers that have not heard of it, it is this sort of phenomenon that developed in Japan in the 1970s where, you know, they were really all about getting, you know, their national pride back after being defeated in World War II. And part of that was like people worked themselves literally to death to sort of, you know, out of sort of like for the glory of their country. Um, so there were all of these white collar businessmen that would work 20 hours a day for, you know, several months at a time and then just drop dead, like of a heart attack wow. or a stroke or something at an incredibly early age. 
And uh, what is so Japan, because this was starting to become a legitimate problem, like they didn't want it to get more out of hand. And Kuroshi still is a thing today, but it's something that you can actually open a case with the government about. You can go to the government and you can say, my spouse died or my father died or my mother died because she had been working herself. She, her company worked her to death and like the government will look into it. And if it was found that not just whether they were, the company was forcing them to work 20 hours a day, but whether they were just incentivizing them to do it or sort of suggesting that they do it. It doesn't have to be like you have, you don't have to be chained to your desk. It's your company is not allowed to make you work enough to kill yourself. Uh, And Right now, in the modern day, like it's less of a thing. It was always white collar businessmen in Japan, but now that is a thing. In, there's words for it in Chinese. There's words for it in in a bunch of other Asian countries that are sort of manufacturing hubs, and it's own. It's referred. It's they're words that now refer to blue collar workers in factories, like the workers at uh, the whatever that factory was in Shenzhen where they have, where they put up suicide Fox because people, yeah, Foxconn where mm. people were jumping off the building, like because suicide counts in Kiroshi, like you can't, if you kill yourself, like not just from a stroke, but if you jump off a building from despair, like because you drove yourself crazy by working 20 hour days, wow. that also wow. you can open up a case into that. There has to be some sort of penalty for these things. If not, then we're again, there's no incentive for businesses to to change anything. And while it might feel dumb at first, like that woman that spilled the hot coffee on herself and got awarded the three million dollar uh, settlement, mm. uh, like that again, that gets held up because if you look at it as one individual event, like, yeah, does anybody really deserve three million dollars because they spilled coffee on themselves? Like to most people, they would just look at that statement and say, no, that's stupid. Why would anybody do that? And it seems like it makes no sense. But when you think of, you know, that amount of money, $3 million was specifically chosen as a punishment for McDonald's for keeping their coffee at this temp- at a temperature that they knew was dangerous for both employees and customers. That was, a, hmm. they were trying to change McDonald's behavior and they didn't like they still keep their coffee that hot and uh like I got burned by it and lots of people have gotten burned by it and yeah without changing the incentives it doesn't matter if it looks stupid like you might have to have some like three million dollar hot coffee things in the workplace but the it looks better that way than the other way to me for sure like just getting the balance a little bit shifted in the other direction. Hey, even if it shifts in the other direction so much that silly things start to happen, cool. We'll just shift it back the other way. But right now I think a lot of people argue that, Oh, we can't do that. Like we cannot, we can't like make businesses do things that they don't want to do because then what will happen? The world will end. Like it's downhill slope from there. But like otherwise it's just going to stay the way it does, it is now forever so people got to people got to just accept that some things are going to be dumb sometimes 
Well, it's 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 better than people jumping off of buildings or killing themselves by overwork. So I think that or, uh, like I mean, I, I definitely see the opioid crisis as part of as absolutely like linked to the despair that's sort of inherent in a lot of these jobs. Like like we were talking about at the very beginning uh, to bring it back around. Like this thought, like this is it, this is it for me. I'm mm. never gonna get a job that like does not keep track of when I'm in the bathroom. I'm never going to get a job that allows me to defend myself when someone calls me a cunt. Like I'm never going to get a job that, you know, will make enough money that I don't have to worry about overdrawing my checking account every month. That Mm -hmm. sort of despair, I think is what drive, like people turn to drugs. And in my case, like just anything that makes you feel better. In my case, it was smoking a lot and it was eating a lot. Like I managed to like gain weight while I was working at Amazon because I just ate so much junk food because I felt so miserable. And like a lot of the things that we do to sort of escape inescapable stress are really, really bad for us. And are a lot of them are becoming health crises for first world countries like obesity, like drug addiction, smoking, overeating, like all of these things. And right now there's kind of no, right now because like it, uh, private uh, private health insurance is, you know, sort of ends up bearing the burden of that. There is no incentive for the government to do anything about it because they're not. But if if there was just Medicare for all, then the government actually would have to have they would have to step in or at, just to save themselves from going bankrupt in 50 years when, you know, all of the heart attacks from all of these, from all of these horrible, stressful jobs uh, sort of come the, when the bill comes due, you know? And and just to kind of bring it back around, cause I know uh, you got to get going. That raises to my mind, this quote, you know, I'm going to drop another name. Mm. I'm just going to up the ante a little bit more. Well, let's hear it. I'm going to go. I'm going to go full Sojourner Truth. Oh! Right? Thank you. And talk about ain't I a woman. And what you really make me think about is people who are on opioids or depressed or, you know, self-harming and drinking and all these other things. Am I not going to be able to become a person? Or am I always going to be in this, you know, dehumanized, time-checked, Overly authoritarian, managed, slave-like conditions. Small as slave, not big as slave. Small as slave-like conditions. Ain't I a woman? Can will I ever be a man? Right. This idea of you know a new kind of workplace abolitionist movement, if I can coin that term right here, right now, mm. to free people from those conditions, um, whether they be the workers or even the managers, and this this movement towards better workplace experiences so that people are less miserable at those moments of, of interaction where they just want to make a wage, they just want to return an item, they just want to get an answer on their cable bill, they just want some help. And making a workplace where people feel like they can both help and get help and be helped by the people who are employing them. Yeah, and and be able to help people too. Like I was raised in a very with a very like 
be helpful work ethic or, or whatever. Like my dad had a real hardcore work ethic and he sort of passed it on to me as much as sometimes I feel it's kind of a nonsensical and uh, self-defeating work ethic. Well, I, I think I, I can, Adam, can I speak for you? You want to speak for me? Uh, I don't know. It, it depends what you're going to say. I was going to thank Emily for being on the podcast. Yeah, what were yeah. you going to say? I was going to say the same thing. Emily, this has been amazing um, and so great to talk with you and hear your story and, and your philosophy behind your story. Um, this is a this is a rare form of conversation that I think more people need to have. And so um, we're super thankful for you talking with us and sharing both about your book and also, again, what you learned from it. And like, there's there's much work to be done, you know, and like, let, let us not go into Kiroshi ourselves and that we, um, you know, can find a way out. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And uh, it was really delightful to have. I mean, sometimes you do radio spots and like, you know, they cannot read a book every single day. And I totally I totally get that. But like sometimes when they haven't read the book, you end up answering the same questions over and over and over. And uh, thank you for letting me talk about music theory for once. <laughs> Anytime, anytime. <laughs> well, that, that, that's actually why we had you on. And I, I, if I emailed you and said, would you come on to talk about music theory? I don't, you know, I figured you'd have to at least push the book a little bit. But we really want, and the next time we talk to you, we'll talk to you more about music theory and experience. Indeed. And I think that would be a- Definitely. Talk to you anytime, man. Thanks again to Emily Gindelsberger, author of On the Clock, What Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. You can pick up the book wherever you get books, which if you want to be ironic, you can order through Amazon or probably your local independent book reseller would be a good choice. Make sure to grab it. It is a really great read and provides a lot of food for thought around the issues we discussed today. You can find much of her other journalistic writing online as well. We want to thank you for continuing support and subscribe to Experience by Design. It's been wonderful to see all the positive reactions and feedback. We always welcome your comments, positive or negative, at feedback at experiencexdesign, all one word, dot com. We also welcome show ideas. If you or your company are doing something in the experience design realm and want to share it, let us know about it. And if you want to financially help support the podcast, you can go to our website, experiencexdesign.com, and our Glow FM page as well. Well, I'm off to prep for this semester's experiment in course co-design. One week down and only 14 more to go. Should be fun. Wish me luck. Bye.